don't know about you, but I have been uh, enjoying that song that we've been learning, Come People of the Risen King, uh, that we just sang a few moments ago. I, I love it uh, that it begins each verse with that word, come. It's an invitation, right? Our God calls us, he calls us to come to Him. And what a privilege uh, we have each, each Lord's Day to, to come to Him and to hear from Him, speak from His Word, uh, which is what we are desirous of now as we consider Psalm 50 together. Um, last week, as we considered Psalm 9, I, I began the sermon by noting that Christians in the West uh, have begun to feel various kinds of pressure. Christians in the West are, are now perhaps more acutely feeling some hostility for their beliefs and their values. Uh, we noted a few dangers in that conversation and uh, a sense of forgetfulness uh, concerning the church's history. Down through the ages, the church has normally been oppressed and ostracized. And what has been unusual in the course of the church's recent history, particularly in the West, was a general acceptance of the church's presence. The general acceptance of the church's presence may now be on the decline. This is not insignificant or unimportant, but it is also not what is most significant or most important. As we considered last week, the hope of the church is not in what the world thinks of it, but in what God thinks of His church. He loves His people. He delivered them and He will defend them. That defense may come on the last day, but it will come. As I said, while it is not unimportant, what is most important is not what the world thinks of the church, but what God thinks. Truth be told, from time to time, God does not like what He sees in His people. Throughout the Scriptures, we read of God confronting His people in their indifference, ingratitude, and immorality. This is what we get to think about this morning from Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, God confronts His people in their sin, and He calls them to repent. This has present-day implications for us. We, we may be in danger of getting caught up with looking outside the walls of the church and thinking about the pressures that we feel from the world too much. In other words, we may fear the world too much and not fear God enough. What is more, it is our fear of God our imitation of Him and our humble thanks for His redeeming grace in Jesus Christ that sets us apart from the world. It is our very distinctness from the world through our fear and love of God that He is pleased to so often use to draw sinners to Himself. It is my prayer that as we study Psalm 50 together, we would be confronted and comforted by God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 50. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find Psalm 50 beginning on page 473. 473. And while you're turning there, let me offer just a little bit of background for our study. Psalm 50 is a Psalm of Asaph. Uh, in fact, if I've got my facts in order, uh, this is his first Psalm in the Psalter. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 39, Asaph was a Levite and a priest. 
A little later in Chronicles, in chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, we learn that he was appointed to be the chief minister before the ark of the Lord. And one of his duties was to sound the cymbals. But he was especially supposed to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. The Psalms as a whole are a wonderful collection of prayers, poems, proclamations, and songs of the ancient people of God. In fact, it sounds uh, more than any other category. Psalm 50 most likely falls into the category of proclamation. It sounds a lot like a, a proclamation of an Old Testament prophet, minor prophet particularly. For in and through this psalm, God, He confronts His people. God addresses Israel's ingratitude and immorality. Psalm 50 is situated in an interesting location in the Psalter. Leading up to Psalm 50, there is a striking emphasis on God as the source of strength and salvation for His people. Beginning in Psalm 46 and stretching through Psalm 49, we're told that God is the refuge and fortress of His people. He is the King who rules over all. God is the guide of His people. He is their salvation and shelter in times of trouble. All of this, of course, underscores the fact that God's people are not independent of God. Rather, they are dependent upon Him. They need Him. Not only that, but instead of ingratitude, God's people ought to be grateful for His loving care, for being their shelter and their fortress. And in light of His loving care, God's people ought to reflect His holy character. In Psalm 50, God confronts Israel. Israel's ingratitude and immorality. And it's appropriately followed by Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance. Lord willing, we'll examine Psalm 51 another day. But today, we turn our attention to Psalm 50. And so often when reading the Old Testament, we imagine there's a great deal of, of difference between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. And in some ways, there is a difference and a significant one at that. The new covenant in Jesus Christ has dawned. And yet there is much that we can learn from the faithfulness and the faithlessness of the Old Testament people of God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 even called the church in Corinth to look back and learn a few lessons from the Old Testament people of God. So did the writer to the Hebrews. And it's important and appropriate that we do the same this morning. So let's turn now and read Psalm 50. A Psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. 
I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. We're going to study Psalm 50 in four sections under four headings. Israel's God, Israel's ingratitude, Israel's immorality, and Israel's hope. And I believe you should be able to find an outline provided there in your bulletin that I hope will help you follow along as we study God's Word together. Let's begin with our first point, Israel's God. And as we do, let's read those first six verses again. Psalm 50, verses 1 to 6. The Mighty One. God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Well, God, He is undoubtedly the focus of these verses. He is the Mighty One who rules over all. We know that not simply from the title, from His title, but by His ability to speak and to summon the earth. He summons not just one part of the earth, but the earth, the whole earth. And that is what we get from the phrase, that is what the phrase, from the rising of the sun to its setting is meant to communicate. The whole earth is meant to come to Him. According to these verses, God does not merely speak and summon the entire earth. No, according to verse 4, He calls to the heavens above. Here we are encountering and learning about the God who rules over all and makes His rule known to all. He is the Mighty One, the Lord who rules the entire cosmos. 
But why does our all-powerful God and Lord call, speak, and summon the heavens and the earth? We're told there at the end of verse 4. He has issued this call so that he may judge his people. This is startling for several reasons. Not least of which because of what we learn about our God in verses 2 and 3. We learn that our God's abode is in Zion. That his... That is his heavenly dwelling place. And out of Zion, he speaks and shines forth in beauty. The beauty of his perfection. This God who comes to judge his people is perfectly blameless, beautiful, and bright. This perfection and beauty and light should remind us of God's righteous and holy character. As 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 reminds us, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And let's just pause and reflect on the fact that our God is identified as beautiful. Were you struck by that? Sadly, we do not often think about our God in these terms, do we? Perhaps we ought to... uh, This is another good reason to read the Psalms more often, isn't it? One of the things that I was encouraged to think about this past week in reading and praying and thinking over this passage was God's beauty. God, He... He defines beauty. God's character and His acts define what is beautiful. And when we come across passages in the Old Testament or the New, where we are tempted to kind of cringe at what we we think might be kind of an ugly side of God, then I think we need to let our reaction and our thoughts be corrected. We need to rethink what beauty is. Perhaps we need to think this is the beauty of God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice. And perhaps we need to humbly pray, Lord, help me to see the beauty of your character in this, in your justice. We do not need to reinterpret the character of our God so that we or the world see Him as beautiful. He is beautiful. What we need to do is pray and ask for the Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds, asking Him to help us see the already present beauty and splendor and majesty and holiness of God through what we have encountered in the Scriptures. This righteous and holy God, He is on the move. And all that attends Him in His movement speak to speak and judge, further underscore his character and power. The fire that's mentioned there in verse 3 reminds us of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, where on the heels of warning against idolatry and false worship, we are told that our God is a consuming fire. The mighty tempest reminds us of the chaotic waters of creation, a tempest that only God could subdue and subject to his holy will. The creation He controls by His powerful Word. But here we see that His Word issues a subpoena to His people. They are to enter His divine courtroom. God's people are those who are faithful to Him. They are those who live within the covenant community. And they are those who have expressed their faith in Him through sacrifice. If nothing else, these verses communicate to us that Israel's God is stirred up. And there is one thing we can be sure of. 
God's judgment will be right. After all, the heavens declare His righteousness. His judgment will be holy, just, and good. Though this psalm was no doubt a prod to the old covenant people of God, to give thanks to God and to humbly pursue holiness, it should also be a prod to the new covenant people of God. Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, told us that the psalms are about Him. How might Psalm 50 be about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, who has been given authority to speak and summon the earth for judgment? None other than Jesus Christ. Consider what we learn from John chapter 5, verse 22. The Father judges no one. This is Jesus speaking. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And, and what does the Apostle Paul say in 2 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. That fire sound familiar from Psalm 50? From flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And who will gather His people to Himself? Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself, the Lord Jesus Himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught together with Him. It's the gathering. Got together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. I think that given these New Testament descriptions of Jesus Christ's authority to judge His gathering His people to Himself, it is not here, it's not hard to hear this psalm coming off the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. The words that we hear directed at Israel could just as easily be directed toward us from Jesus Christ. Let's turn now and consider our second point, Israel's ingratitude, where we hear our God speak to His people Read Psalm 50, verses 7 to, uh, 7 to 15 with me. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills... I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Verses 1 to 6 build up a great deal of tension within this psalm. They have told us that the beautiful, bright, and blameless God is on the move to speak and judge His people. Finally, in verse 7, we're told that God will testify against His people. And notice how fully God identifies Israel as His people. In verse 7, He calls them, My people. At the end of the verse, he says that he is their God. Let's admit the strangeness of this. God has a judgment to render against his 
people. This is strange indeed. Normally we think of God being for His people, and, and rightly so. So when God says that He has a word against His people, we should listen closely. What will God's charge against His people be? How are God's people in need of rebuke? Verse 8 tells us that God will not rebuke His people because they have failed to bring their burnt offerings before Him. It's not as though Israel has not brought sacrifices. In fact, they, they have. They're always continually before God. They're regularly doing this. Well, what then is the problem? Why is then a, re a rebuke necessary? Israel, they, they're doing what the Lord says. They, they keep bringing these sacrifices before Him. Why is a rebuke necessary? Well, how God describes Himself in verses 9 to 13, I think is the foil of how Israel views Him and why they are in need of a rebuke. God will not accept Israel's animals because every animal in the world belongs to Him. As verse 10 says, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God is not needy and He is not hungry as verses 12 and 13 make clear. It seems as though the people of Israel viewed God as being dependent upon them. But that really is to view God like the gods of the surrounding nations, in need of kind of being continually appeased and fed. God is not dependent upon His creatures and creation. He doesn't need to be, need to be tended to like one who cannot care for Himself. He doesn't need to be fed and nourished to be kept alive. He is independent of His creatures and creation. He does not need them. They need Him. He is the one who is sustaining creation. Do you see how Israel has been thinking about God? Do you see how the people of God inverted their relationship to God? They had begun to think of themselves as the generous caretaker of God. God did not ordain sacrifices for His sake, but for Israel's sake. Did God need to be reminded of something through the sacrifices? Or did Israel? Through the ordained sacrifices, the people of Israel should have been reminded of their guilt before God. They should have been reminded of God's grace toward them. And they should have been filled with gratitude. Verses 14 and 15 remind us of what was to be the real nature of Israel's relationship to God. Israel was to offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. These sacrifices were voluntary. They were to some degree spontaneous and they were to spring out of hearts that were, that were thankful to God. Thankful for His provision, for what He has done. Not for what they would do, but thankful for what He has done. Thankful for His forgiveness. Thankful for His generosity. Thankful for Him and His covenant love toward His people. Thankful ultimately for His grace. Friend, if you're, you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you to know that God is a gracious God. I, I want you to become one who gives thanks to God. I want you to become one who gives thanks to God for Jesus Christ. One who calls out to God in the midst of trouble, as verse 15 says. Friend, you need to understand that you're in trouble. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I and everyone in this world has sinned and rebelled against God. We have all decided to live our own way rather than God's way. Our sin against God separates us from Him. And it brings us under His divine and eternal wrath. We are all in danger of facing the consequences of our sin forever in hell. And the truth is is that we need to be forgiven of our sins. We need God to graciously forgive us of our sin. But, But how does that happen? Forgiveness from God is a gracious pardon to those who repent and believe. In other words, when God forgives repentant sinners, He no longer holds our trespasses against us. While the punishment that is due to our sin does not fall upon us, because God is just, our sin must be punished. And the good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ humbled Himself and took the punishment for the sins of those who repent and believe. God the Son left His throne in heaven and came to earth. He he took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully man and fully God and He lived a humble life of obedience to God the Father. As the Father's perfect child, He did what the Father said. And yet, at the right time, He died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And three days after His death, God raised Him from the dead and proved to us that our sins can be forgiven through Him, through Jesus Christ. Friend, Jesus calls you now to humble yourself, to confess that you are in trouble, to confess that your sins have endangered you to face God's just wrath, to confess that Jesus Christ is the one who can save you from your sin. Jesus calls us to turn from our sin and to come to Him in faith, believing that He lived and died and was raised for us to forgive us of our sins. And not just of one or two of our sins, but to forgive us of all of our sins. God's gracious forgiveness encourages thanks within our hearts. It is through His forgiveness and the work of the Spirit in our hearts that we come to give thanks to God. And if you want to know more about what it means to call out to Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ, and to be forgiven of your sins, then please talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came with here this morning. Or or, or come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about uh, the grace that we can know in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning than this good news. The people who fulfill their vows to God, verse 14, are those who are thankful to God for, for, the, for the forgiveness that they know in Jesus Christ. They are they're the kind of people who call out to God in the midst of trouble. They're the kind of people who glorify God because they recognize that they need God. They need His deliverance. They need Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Arlington Baptist Church, we need to recognize this about our worship. Our worship says something about God. Israel's worship said something about God. It said that God needed them. Our worship says something about God. How we worship says something about the God we worship.
when we lift up high praise to Him, we are proclaiming that He is great and greatly to be praised. When we pray to Him, we confess and express that He hears and He cares about His people and that He relates to us and that we need Him. When we sit and listen to a sermon, we are expressing that His voice is the most important voice in worship. What is your motivation for gathering here to worship God? Have you come here this morning because you know you need God? Have you come to express your praise and thanks to Him? I pray so. How can we grow in thanksgiving? We must recognize that gratitude grows in the garden of grace. We must revel in God's grace toward us. And we must also recognize that thanksgiving is the work of God's Spirit. As it looks to what He has done, as it responds to what He has done, all that we have, we have in and through Jesus Christ. We of all people ought to be a thankful people. Well, having considered Israel's ingratitude, let's turn now and consider Israel's immorality. This is our third point, Israel's immorality. Uh, Read Psalm 50, verses 16 to 21 now. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. If, if verses 7 to 15 did not serve as a strong enough warning to God's people, then these verses should. When we read the opening of verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, we might initially be inclined to think that God is no longer speaking to His people. The truth is God is still speaking to His people. Just consider what these people are doing. They are taking His law and His covenant upon their lips. In other words, they seem to be involved with the corporate worship of God's people where God's word and covenant promises were proclaimed, read, and sung. What is more, verse 7 opened with God promising to speak and testify against His people. And while that testimony was implicit in verses 7 to 15, here it is explicit in verses 16 to 21. By the end of verse 21, we learn the charges that God has laid before His people. Yes, shockingly, God is speaking to His people in these verses. And what is evident from God's speech is that though God's people move their lips by reciting His law and His covenant, their lives appear to be unmoved by His grace. God's law was not only a reflection of His character and an expression of His will, But it was also an expression of His care and concern for His people. And God's covenant was an expression of His unwavering commitment to His people. 
God connected and bound Himself to His people in these ways. But look at what marks their lives. Hatred of God's discipline. Setting aside God's Word. Approval of theft, adultery, lies, and slander. We have a sense from the the context of this psalm and from our inner God-given conscience that these things are wrong. But we need to consider them more deeply. What does it mean to hate discipline? To hate God's discipline in particular? It means to refuse and despise God's loving correction. We know from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, that God disciplines those whom He loves. He corrects those in whom He delights. To hate God's discipline is to hate His fatherly care and concern. How sad it is that this comes from those who take God's covenant on their lips. Hating God's discipline is to scream with our lives, I don't need you to tell me how to live. It is to foolishly proclaim that we have greater knowledge and wisdom than God. To hate God's discipline dangerously borders on sitting in judgment upon God's wisdom. Sitting in judgment upon God Himself. This warning against despising God's discipline even appears in the New Testament. It appears in Hebrews chapter 12 where the church is encouraged not to despise God's discipline and not to refuse the one who is speaking, Jesus Christ. How might we as Christians despise or hate God's discipline in our lives today? If if an elder of this church, if a pastor of this church came up to you and lovingly, gently, and biblically expressed a concern about an area of your life, would you listen? What about if a fellow member, church member, did the same? If a brother or sister in Christ approached you and lovingly, gently, and biblically expressed a concern about an area in your life, would you listen? Would you turn them away? God works through all kinds of means, but some of His clearest work comes through the love care and concern of fellow church members. We're going to get some things wrong when we seek to bring loving correction to one another. Perhaps we might misunderstand something or blow things out of proportion. But even if that is the case, there might still be something to our brother or sister's correction that we should humbly consider. And if you're not a member of a church, if you're not involved in the life of a church, how will you receive this loving care from God apart from being connected to a church and opening your life to other brothers and sisters in Christ who want to see Christ formed in you and want you to work in their lives to see Christ formed in them? Children, youth, young adults, I would encourage you in this. If I could encourage you in this, it would be to recognize that God's discipline of you most often comes through the loving discipline of your parents. God has placed them in your life to teach you about His world, His word, and His ways. Don't despise their discipline. They have lived a few more years than you in this world. 
and they know a thing or two about life in this world. Each time you have a conversation with your parents or face consequences for your sin, let me encourage you to ask your parents, how can I honor and learn from your discipline and God's discipline in my life? What do I need to understand about God? What do I need to believe about Jesus Christ in the face of my sin? You need to know, believe, and trust that He forgives. Parents, let me encourage you to make sure that your discipline reflects God's loving, fatherly discipline. Never enter conversations concerning discipline out of anger and confess your sin when you do. We want our loving correction to be that loving correction. Which means that we need to enter into these conversations with our kids knowing the truth that we want them to learn about God and Jesus Christ. And we don't want to contradict that truth. Israel hated God's discipline. And they also cast God's words behind them according to verse 17. And what might be in view here is to kind of set aside God's Ten Commandments. With the concerns that follow, this seems to be particularly in view. However, let's just consider what's taking place here. To cast God's Word behind is to set them out of your view. The idea here is to kind of throw God's words over your shoulder. That's what the imagery is actually meant to communicate. It's my sense that when we do this, we're only digging our own graves. We're throwing God's Word over our shoulders like dirt. How did the Psalter open? What did, what did Psalm 1 say? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. To cast God's word behind is one of the most dangerous things that we can do. It is to suppress the truth of God's word so that our consciences are not burdened by it. Again, this is such an ironic action from those who take God's statutes upon their lips. How often does the church take God's word upon her lips in worship only to leave them behind as they leave the building. Brothers and sisters, we must be eager to carry God's word with us into the world. We must be nourished by it and eat it like bread each day. In verse 18, a violation of the eighth commandment comes into view. Some in Israel were pleased with thieves. This may not mean participating in theft, but it certainly it is certainly not confronting theft. Perhaps this is a, a delighting to hear the tale of how one wrongfully received gain. This is nothing less than delighting in a violation of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. It is a failure to love our neighbors by protecting their material well-being. Keeping company with adulterers means to have a portion with them. It may mean being adulterous, but it may simply mean hearing the stories of adultery and tacitly approving them. Here, contravening the seventh commandment 
is in view. Sexual immorality is all too prevalent in our culture and too often we tacitly, sometimes unconsciously, approve of it. Our culture wants us to approve of adultery too. I don't know if you've recognized this, but just just think of the storylines that we see in movies and in TV shows. They're often written in such a way that they want us to root for adultery. They promote the intimacy that it should exist only within the confines of marriage, the covenant relationship of one man and one woman for life. We need to pay careful attention to the plot lines and stories. We need to be discerning consumers. We need to consider the word that the world is trying to deliver to us. And we need to consider the authoritative word that God has already delivered. And this is where we need to have a crisp and clear understanding of what marriage is. For the very concept of adultery presupposes the concept of marriage. Marriage was created and instituted by God to display His gracious love. To teach us about how He would unite Himself to His redeemed people. And more generally, for the good of His creatures. Marriage is a covenant relationship entered into by one man and one woman, which God bears witness to. This monogamous covenant relationship is normally to be marked by companionship, regular physical intimacy, and lifelong fidelity. Our culture would like to redefine marriage. But frankly, God created marriage. And since He created it, He gets to define and describe marriage. Attempting to redefine and re-describe marriage as something other than that of a covenantal union of one man and one woman for life is nothing less than an attempt to wrest from God His own divine authority. It is an attempt to take His throne and be God. You see, the debate about marriage in our culture is not actually about marriage at all. It's about authority. Who has it? God or man? God is the mighty one. He is the Lord. He not only gets to define and describe marriage, but He also gets to proscribe its boundaries. That which threatens, ruptures, and attempts to sever the union which God has joined together may fall into the category of adultery either by thought, word, or deed. Some within Israel are guilty of yet more. Some have used their lips to lie, a violation of the ninth commandment. Some have used their slithering tongues to slander their siblings. The Puritan minister Nicholas Byfield once said, An unbridled tongue is the chariot of the devil, wherein he rides in triumph. The course of an unruly tongue is to proceed from evil to worse, to begin with foolishness, and to go on with bitterness, and to end in mischief and madness. Jesus taught us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Brothers and sisters, Let us watch our language. And I'm not just thinking about cursing. Let us be mindful about how we speak of each other as siblings in God's household. May it never be said that we slander our brother. Let's make special efforts to praise our brothers and sisters in Christ. In each other's company. And in the company of those who do not know our loving Lord. That is an important testimony to those who do not know Christ. 
of the love that we have for one another. Isn't that what Jesus said? How will, how will all men know that you are my disciples? By the love that you have for one another. Let our lips be filled with truth about our Lord and about each other. And let them be filled with love. How appropriate is it that the psalmist turns from speaking of the tongues of men to speaking of the tongue of God? God has been silent, but He is no longer silent. He has laid out the charges and the guilt of Israel. And now He turns to rebuke His people. And in this rebuke, there is actually hope. So let's turn now and consider our final point, Israel's hope. Read Psalm 50, verses 22 and 23. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What hope is there in these verses? God threatens to tear His people apart. He threatens to tear His people to shreds so thoroughly that there's nothing left to deliver. How is verse 22 filled with hope? It is filled with hope. It's filled with hope because God has not yet torn His people apart. It means that there is time to repent. It means that there is time to turn to the living God, to confess their sins, to confess that they have been an ungrateful people, to confess that they have despised God's discipline and cast off His Word. It means that there is time to come to Him for mercy, to plead with Him, to forgive. But perhaps this has been bothering you all throughout this psalm. From the very beginning, we've learned that God has been stirred up to judge and to judge His people at that. Perhaps you have wondered, how can God be stirred up to judge His people when they are called His faithful ones? Why are the faithful ones threatened with God's judgment? Well, we need to recognize something about this psalm and about other passages in Scripture too. This psalm carries with it a threat and warning to God's people. Why would God use threats and warnings in addressing His people? Last year I wrote a paper on this subject, so if you're interested in the very long answer, you can ask me for that paper. But let me just give you the short answer for now. Why would God use threats and warnings in addressing His people? God uses threats and warnings to keep His faithful ones faithful to Him. Those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, ought to recognize that scriptural warnings are the means that God uses to preserve His people in the midst of their own perseverance. This threat of judgment is the means that God uses to keep His faithful ones to Him. God uses means to keep His faithful ones faithful. And one of those means, surprisingly, are warnings of judgment. God's people, those who are indwelt by the Spirit, hear His warnings. These warnings in Psalm 50, we hear His warnings. We evaluate our lives before God's Word. Our sins are exposed and we respond in repentance and faith. What follows after Psalm 50? Psalm 51. 
a prayer of repentance. What is more, if we consider that our, our Savior could have just as easily have spoken this psalm to the new covenant people of God, how much more then, to use the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, how much more should we not refuse Him who is speaking? How much more should we respond with thanksgiving? How much more should we respond through repentance and faith? How much more should we repent of our ingratitude and immorality in view of the mercies of God? And this is where we're going to conclude. I want you to recognize that verse 23 is nothing other than a call to respond in repentance and faith. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Giving thanks to God demands that we recognize our humble state before Him. It demands that we recognize that we are guilty. And that He holds out to us in Jesus Christ a generous gift of grace. The one who offers thanksgiving as His sacrifice is acknowledging what God has done in the past. Most of all, it is acknowledging what God has done in Jesus Christ. And this acknowledgement of seeing, believing, recognizing what Jesus Christ has done and trusting in Him glorifies God. Thanksgiving means that we have seen our guilt. It means that we have perceived and received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And those who have been lavished with such grace live out of gratitude to God. Just as we read earlier in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, we present our lives as living sacrifices. Out of gratitude for God's grace, we order our way rightly. Instead of casting aside God's Word, we order our way according to God's Word. And it is because of God's grace that we have the hope of knowing the salvation of our God. And we do have this hope. For in Jesus Christ, we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us offer thankful worship to God from our hearts. Let's pray together.